This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. My guest today is Anat Shankar Osorio. Anat is a messaging and communications expert, a researcher, and a political pundit. Her work dissects how messaging and the words we choose can determine the effectiveness of political movements and public policy outcomes. Anat's writing has been published in Salon, The Atlantic, Huffington Post, and a variety of other outlets. Anat runs ASO Communications. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Let's start with your book, um, published a couple years ago, called Don't Buy It, uh, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. Yeah. First of all, that's a tough title because I read a bunch of book reviews, and every one of them says across the top, don't buy it which is a hard sell when you're trying to, you know, sell copies. Um, But I'd love if you could share with our listeners the sort of the main thesis behind the book. The main thesis, which is actually exemplified in the title, is that the words that we use affect us in unconscious ways. And so sometimes, actually in negating a frame, which is something we learned from a colleague here at Berkeley, George Lakoff in the linguistics department, when you negate a frame, you actually evoke it. So don't buy it is in some ways a way to make people Got do it. precisely the opposite. Crafty. But as far as the thesis, it's really about the ways that we communicate about the economy and economic issues. And it's largely a metaphor study. And so what it is, is it's looking at our tendency uh, to talk about the economy and to hear about the economy in largely naturalistic metaphors. So it's healthy, it's unhealthy. We talk about having a recovery bill. Um, You know, we talk about quantitative easing as being a form of shock therapy or we need to resuscitate the patient. And what we find when we actually do experimentation is that when you prime people with one metaphor versus another, you actually radically alter their perceptions of what the, quote, economy is, and therefore what we ought to do with it. So we have to keep the economy happy. Right. Makes people think that it's a living being that needs to be fed and cared for, when in fact, it's a construction of human choices. Exactly. As I like to say, you know, some of my best friends are economists, (laughs) but much to their dismay, the economy actually doesn't exist. It is just a convention by which we measure human activity. And so there is no economy that we can go sort of hang out with or pay homage to or sacrifice to as politicians would have us believe. And so when we use these naturalistic metaphors, I both believe in terms of sort of analysis, but then also in experimentation, it sets up the idea that a laissez-faire approach, something that would leave the economy largely alone, if you will, mm-hmm. except in dire cases of emergency, mm-hmm. um, it it makes that seem not just plausible, but desirable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David Simon, the creator of The Wire and a social critic, gave an interview in which he said that there is no inherent moral valence to capitalism. Mm-hmm. It is not inherently good or inherently bad. Every time capitalism has been implemented as a governing economic structure anywhere in the world, it's implemented through a set of choices made by humans. And those choices determine whether the economy works for people or doesn't work for people. And I think what you're emphasizing is that if people understand, if the public understands that the economy is a set of choices made by humans, then it can be changed 
by choices made by different humans. Right. And in fact, one of the main things that I tend to emphasize both in the book and with my clients, I sort of have never done a consulting project in which this has not been an issue, uh-huh. not just in economic space, but whether I'm working on messaging on climate, on reproductive rights, on immigration, asylum, you name it, is the pervasive use of the passive to describe our situations. So you take a common expression like 20,000 jobs were lost. Uh-huh. Or when we're talking about um, the 2008 economic crisis, you know, people lost their homes. Right. So as a person who routinely loses her keys, her cell phone, her wallet, much to my husband's dismay, sometimes in the same day, I've never lost my job, right? right. Like, I always know where my job is. Right. I haven't misplaced my house. I feel like that would be a pretty tough thing to do. And yet when we say that people lost X, or as we hear Democratic senators saying right now, people are going to lose their health insurance. No one's going to lose their health insurance. Someone's going to take it. Right. And if we don't establish at the outset that a problem is person-made, it becomes cognitively inconsistent to believe it could be Mm person-fixed. This connects really nicely to another major takeaway, I think, in in some of your research, which is don't message on your opponent's turf. Right. Explain what that means. Yeah, so basically what we find ourselves doing often is we unwittingly embrace the frame of our opposition and we cede ground by agreeing to have their argument. Mm. So one of the classic ways that we do that, and this is pervasive, is we essentially, both on the left and right, agree unconsciously to have an argument about who loves the economy best. So the right says we love the economy best and the way that you please the economy is by giving wealthy people tax cuts to have a stimulative effect, essentially supply side, right, trickle down. And the left, even the more sort of progressive and even sometimes the more radical groups will say, no, we need to increase wages because that will grow the GDP. Or paid sick leave will make workers more productive and Mm -hmm. loyal. Or, you know, a policy like paid family leave will increase economic growth because X, Y, Z. And so we tacitly agree before we start arguing that the objective to pursue, the logical objective, is to grow GDP. Now, for those of us who believe in climate change, and I happen to be one of those people, the idea that any kind of progressive messaging would reaffirm that it's our job to grow the economy should be messaging malpractice. Mm. Because in reality, the only thing that has infinite growth are cancer cells and neoliberal economies. Like, growth (laughs) actually is not an objective that we should be promoting in our messaging if we are actual believers in environmental destruction, which I think... Yeah. would be willfully ignorant not to be. One example that you mentioned that I think is really stark is talking about abortion rights mm-hmm. in terms of getting the government you know, out of your yeah. medical decisions. And from a progressive perspective, you know, progressives support the idea that government should be an actor in our lives. It can be used to make people's lives better. And adopting a small government frame to argue that issue, I think, reinf- as you, would, you would argue, reinforces some of the fundamental precepts of the right. Yeah, the history of the choice to argue about abortion in a privacy versus an equity context is a really interesting one, right? So in the decision, both in the legal framework, sort of the argument structure and which which aspect of the Constitution was going to be selected to argue for abortion, there right. was a decision made to go with privacy, privacy and not right. equity. Right. And... In the rhetorical structure, which sort of supported it, there was this U.S. out of my uterus, right? right? Keep your laws off my body. 
And the calculus behind that, and it's not a crazy calculus, was we'll hook the libertarians, right? We will draw from the right-hand side of the spectrum because we will use this privacy-based messaging. And in a sense, I argue (laughs) that the the movement for reproductive rights, especially for abortion, has been a victim of its own success. Mm. Because if you're arguing my child, my choice, then you put yourselves in a situation where, fine, you can have the legal right to an abortion. And I think currently, if I'm not mistaken, 87% of U.S. counties don't have an abortion provider. It's something like that or worse. So there's a legal right to an abortion Mm -hmm. and absolutely no access. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. congratulations, you have your choice, the government got out. Now that was a lie. Yeah. We didn't want government out. We right. wanted government support for it. Interesting. On the messaging side, on the like how will we construct this public campaign? I I think that there there was awareness that it was a silly thing to do. I mean, not silly, but short-sighted. Mm-hmm. Because basically, I mean, the rift between white feminism and um feminism by women of color, it sort of begun from that moment of arguing for a legal right with absolutely no economic element to Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And abortion became a thing that rich white women could have. Access is limited to a very select portion. Right. And I actually would argue, and this is sort of the topic of my second book, which I'm in the midst of, that it's not just the my choice part of that my child, my choice slogan that's toxic, right? Reproductive justice scholars have made that argument beautifully better than me, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the my child part. How so? The idea that children are objects that are wholly mm. owned by the one or two or handful of adults that are legally responsible for them is one of the most toxic ideas that we have in our culture. It is the ethos and the idea behind, well, why should I pay for public school? I don't mm. have any children. Well, why should I have that park? I don't use it. Well, what do I need a public library for? If we see children essentially as pets, right, the problem of the one or two adults that are sort of on the hook for them, whether biologically or legally or both, then it becomes completely and totally logical that the rest of the society has sort of no part to play. And children are not pets. They are, as I like to often tell people, your future proctologist, right? <laughs> I have two kids. One day he is going to like be designing your traffic or he's going to be up in there as your proctologist. Would you like him to be dysfunctional? Right. Right. So it goes beyond me whether or not I right. do a halfway decent job with my children because mm-hmm. they're not pets. Yeah. Um, one of your other uh, primary ideas uh, is this idea that in messaging, if you please all, you please none. Yeah. Um, this idea that if you only use messages that appeal to everybody or seek to appeal to everybody, in fact, they inspire no one and they have a habit of standing for nothing in the end. Yeah. Um, and I'd love if you could speak to the marriage equality movement and how they embrace this frame of love, love wins, love for all, as opposed to making, hey, it's fair for tax purposes if gay yeah. folks can marry, right? Yeah. And I'd also be interested in knowing what you see, what movements you see today as actually sort of really getting this right. Yeah. So the marriage equality example, and in some ways one can draw a parallel between what I'm arguing are the mistakes of the rhetoric of the abortion rights privacy frame we saw the marriage equality movement make that mistake and then correct it. So before the loss of Prop 8 here Mm -hmm. in California, which was, as you recall, a big shock to a lot of people, you know, happy blue California, how could that have happened? 
the the bulk of the messaging on marriage was a rights-based framed. So married filing jointly, hospital visitation, the sort of notion of legal rights. It was very dry. And the reason that it was very dry and it was sort of intentionally legalistic is because in messaging research, what was shown was that when you talked about relationships and love, the people in your sample who were adamantly opposed, your, what, what I would call your intractable opposition, they were freaking out. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as you mentioned relationships, they instantly started thinking about, you know, a man and a man together and a woman and woman together. And they didn't like it. But if you talked about taxes or hospital visitation, it sort of wasn't as imageable. It didn't conjure up this idea. It evokes paperwork instead of people. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the base was okay with it because they were for the issue. And so what are they going to do? Right. But in point of fact, that is a radical misunderstanding of the way that people come to judgments about political issues. So if you do this please all, please none messaging, what I would call milk toast, mm. then what you have is your base is nodding along. They agree because they agree with you on the issue, but they're not going to go repeat that message in the grocery store, right? No one's standing at the grocery store being like, you know, I was thinking the other day about taxation and hospital visitation. And no one's ever attended a wedding and heard the officiant say, I now pronounce you joint filers, right? right. So to the middle, it was sort of like, what are they talking about? Like, what is this marriage thing that they're discussing? Because I really, it doesn't sound like my marriage. I don't think of my partner as my joint filer, Mm -hmm. right? Mm So what happened was, in this attempt to sort of have this bland messaging, and remember, during Prop 8, the ads refused to show gay and lesbian couples because the messaging research showed that that was making the opposition twitchy, right? So they had this, like, sweet, lovely, benign, straight couple talking about their children, And their children weren't even on camera. What can you conclude from that besides that gay people must be so freaky because gay people won't show gay people in their own (laughs) ads, right? right? They must be so horrendous that they won't cast themselves. Prop 8 loss, you know, forgive the expression, but come to Jesus moment, that wasn't working. And there was this shift to say, you know what, what we need is a message that doesn't please all, please none, but rather engages our base. Mm -hmm is a message they're not just agreeing with, but eager to repeat in order to persuade the middle. And one of the gauges that we have that a message is performing in that way is that it actually alienates the opposition. So graphically, if you're looking at a dial test, which is a methodology I use a lot for those of, for folks who have seen the presidential debates on CNN, that's just where the lines are moving across the screen, right? That's a dial test. We're getting people's moment-to-moment responses to what's being said. If you're looking at that graphically, what you're seeing is the baseline going way up, the persuadables at least clearing a healthy 65 Mm -hmm. on a 100-point scale where 50 is neutral, Mm -hmm. and the opposition actually tanking. Mm -hmm. So sort of a sideways V, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're looking to alienate the opposition is, number one, it's our check that the message isn't just persuasive. We're not saying free pie. Right. You say free pie, everyone in the sample dials up. But since none of us are in the business of giving away pie, that doesn't help us to know that that message is popular. Right. (laughs) And so it tells you that your message isn't just persuasive. It's actually progressive. Mm -hmm. It is evoking the set of ideals that you want. It also tells you where in the message you have the outliers, because when we define the opposition, I'm not talking about the Republicans in the sample. When we define the opposition properly, it's usually around 10 to 15% of the sample. 
where the Republicans in the sample will be 40 Mm percent in a nationally representative sample. It's the people who will never agree with you. Hardcore opposition. Hardcore, intractable. They disagree with you at a values level about everything that you think. So if they're dialing away, what that tells you is, oh, that's the point in the conversation where 85 to 90 percent of U.S. voters are like, yeah, whatever. That's not Mm -hmm. objectionable. That's a fine thing to say. And 10 to 15 percent are looking like outliers. This is a strategy that the right wing has pursued to their great, great success for decades. Given that, what do you make of the conversation now that people on the left are having about the direction of the Democratic Party? This idea that we have on the one hand the opportunity to continue messaging to the Obama coalition, which are people of color, young people, women, um, or on the other hand, and it's always an either or, it's never conceived of as an and, or um, you can message at the white working class that maybe Bill Clinton was able to speak to, but Hillary Clinton wasn't or chose not to, yeah. and Trump stole from the Democrats. Do, yeah. do, you, do you see that as the milk toast version, or is it a more complex mapping? I think it is more complex, and it is, as, as you've said rightly, it's always spoken about as an or, right? Are we going to make a class argument? Or are we going to make a race argument? Are we going to make race overt? And if we do, you know, are we losing these white folks? First of all, I think in this day and age, for messaging to not make race overt is, again, another one of those forms of malpractice, because I firmly believe that sort of the animating reality of American political life is, to a large extent, race. So I think the idea that we wouldn't talk about it, I I just don't think that's an option on the table. Um, That aside, what I find in message testing, keeping in mind this idea of this framework that the job of a good message is not to say what's popular, it's to make popular what you need to say. Mm -hmm. Messaging that works to, to cross these sort of boundaries, it really turns out to be, in my experience in testing, an ordering effect problem. Say more. So the traditional progressive message, and it's really built of sort of labor organizing and a Saul Alinsky model, is what I call aha, right? Anger, hope, action. And for anyone who's been trained in organizing, they recognize this, right? If you're a labor organizer, you come and you say, how are things going at work? What is, you know, what's bothering you at work? What's not going well? That's where you get the anger. And then you're supposed to somehow pivot from anger to hope, and then this is what you should do about it. That framework became the basis of all progressive messaging, right? So in reproductive rights, it's, there's a war on women, so we need to do X, Mm -hmm. right? In the environmental movement, the climate is screwed, Mm -hmm. so we should do X, The subject line of every alarmist email you get from the progressive organization, you're on the email Which is every email, right? Exactly. (laughs) So you're supposed to, you know, that's the messaging structure of sort of every message. And I'm being reductionist, but not by much. What we find is that anger, hope, action does not work. And the reason that it doesn't work is because people got 99 problems and they don't want yours. Outside of activists, people don't want your problem. So this entire tendency in messaging to, to essentially be like, this is the Titanic, would you like to buy a ticket, which is basically messaging on the left. Nobody wants a ticket to the Titanic. They know how that ends. Mm-hmm. So instead of going anger, hope, action, what we find in effective messages is that they follow a common structure, which is shared value, problem, solution. And this is the way we actually bridge that, which doesn't need to be an either or, between race and class, Mm. between the interests of the so-called white working class and the Obama coalition. And so what that means is, for example, 
in an immigration message, let's say, where we're specifically talking about immigrant rights and a roadmap to citizenship for the 11 or 12 million, depending on whose math it is, um, folks here without documentation, a message that begins, immigrants move here to contribute to our culture and community, is violating that principle. A message that begins, same as truth uh, today as has been throughout history, people move to make life better for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's hard to move. It takes courage. There's that shared mm-hmm. value. Mm-hmm. Everybody it's moves. It's impossible to disagree with that. Right. So the first statement is not intended to alienate anyone. It's like, well, yeah, of course, the sky is blue, right? And then you say, so same is true today has been throughout history. Immigrant uh, People move to contribute to our culture and community. It's hard to move. It takes courage. Immigrant Americans move here. That's where you introduce the difference. So it's about where the introduction of the different category that you're specifically speaking about, whether that be low-wage workers, whether that be women, whether that be immigrants, whether that be um, refugees and people seeking asylum, it comes after the declaration of a shared value. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Have you examined Hillary Clinton's messaging from the past campaign? What do you think, where do you think they went wrong? (laughs) Well, so, you know, the bare bones sort of for, for folks who've done campaigning, right? You know that like there's a campaign box when you're doing campaigning. And the campaign box, uh, I don't have a whiteboard here. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you have a fireplace. I have a fireplace. Right. You have to imagine the whiteboard. So it's generally a four-part quadrant, right? And there's what your candidate says about him or herself, what your candidate says about their opponent, what the opponent says about him or herself, and what the opponent says about your candidate. That's the four-part box. Mm -hmm. If you imagine filling in that grid, on the Hillary side, there was tons to say about what she said about her opponent. Yeah. What did she say about herself? Yeah. Right? So first of all, I mean, a big, big part of the problem, there were many problems, but a big part of the problem was that simply there was a giant empty box in that space. Hard to get inspired by an empty box. Right. You know, as, as Van Jones rightly said, uh, Martin Luther King did not get famous for saying, I have a complaint, right? <laughs> that there has to actually be a dream. Yeah. And, you know, not for nothing did a relatively unknown junior senator from the middle of the country Who had with a story a to tell, a story about himself, right? Yeah. Get elected on hope. Yeah. The right, end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so counterintuitively, it's actually in the bleakest of times that you need to present the brightest dream. She had a lot of complaints, and rightly so. I have a lot of complaints, too, right? I often tell people I'm definitely coming from a place of anger. So I understand a place of anger. Right. But so first of all, there was just sort of a a question mark in that messaging box. And then in terms of the messaging box, what does she say about her opponent? There was a strategic decision made by the campaign, and this was a big shift between the primary and the general, to decide to differentiate Trump from other Republicans. So if you look at the messaging prior to the general election, still in the primary, there was very much, this is the Republican way. This is maybe an extreme form, but it's an extreme form of business as usual. This is who they are. This is what they do. And then there was a choice made, a deliberate choice made by her comms people, many of whom I know personally and who are lovely, dedicated, hardworking people. They made a calculus that their best bet was to carve out in their messaging Trump as an exception and not to tar him as sort of part and parcel of a Republican or GOP He's ideology. singularly unfit for office. Right, right. And that was a huge mistake. Hmm. And it was a huge mistake because it actually reinforced his narrative of being singular. 
<laughs> it actually reinforced his narrative of being sort of this weird, aberrant, has his own ideas, has his own approach. Outside the system, Outs- anti-establishment. Never been tried. He's right. come up with things we've never even thought of before, when in fact what he is is just a, you know, $2 haircut version of the same crap they've done all along. So um, you said in an interview of messaging gurus like George Lakoff who come before you, that I'm going to quote, one essential critique they bring is a long overdue call to stop trying to appeal to Enlightenment era reason and persuade via facts, figures, and logic. Yeah. And I can sort of hear Dean Brady of the Goldman School (laughs) tearing up from across campus. Um, So how does that uh, square with this idea fundamental to the study of public policy and public policy schools and institution that we should all be striving to find unbiased truth, data-driven truth, mm-hmm. and that that data-driven truth is essential to winning the argument and making good public policy. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many things. There's like a, a set of Russian nesting dolls of uh-huh. irony that I can unpack for you. The first is that I'm very aware that in all of the work that I do, I use facts, facts about how persuasion, how perception, facts from a lot of quantitative research. Data research, yeah. Data research, lots of numbers. So I spend, I, I use a lot of facts to try to persuade people not to use facts. Right. Right. So, you know, on the policy training side, like, yeah, I'm using it, right? Now, As far as using facts and using reason and using sort of analytics and kind of this quest for the right answer based in some kind of understandable truth, I still believe in that in terms of how you arrive at what the policy thing that you are advocating for, you know, is this is this way of solving this problem better than this way of solving Mm -hmm. that problem? How do you kind of get to that Mm -hmm. answer? But as far as messaging it, Mm That's a different animal. And one of the things, you know, you want to horrify Dean Brady. Like, you you think I haven't done it yet. (laughs) One of the most common things that I say to my clients frequently is don't take your policy out in public. It's unseemly. Right. Policy is not messaging. Right. It is not messaging. And one of the key mistakes that we make is we talk about process over outcomes. So you take a wildly popular policy, like raising the minimum wage, which gets majority support, not to $15 an hour, which is an example of a, that's a perfect example, I'm digressing back to an earlier question, of a correct understanding of how to use public opinion research. You find that fight for 15 doesn't get you over 50%, you do it anyway. Because the job of a good message is not to say what's popular. It's to make popular what you need to say. And that's the message the base is going to be enthusiastic about and will turn the middle towards you and make the opposition nutty and look nutty. Back to the question we're on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the facts are there. The policy is there. That's all very important. But you don't actually message the policy. You message what the policy delivers. So in a a messaging poll, if you ask people to what extent you support or do you agree, disagree on a five-point Likert scale, you know, raising the minimum wage, you get lots of great support, especially if if the the question is 10, 10, or 12. But when you say, do you think that people should be paid enough to care for their family? You get much higher support. Mm -hmm. When you ask about paid sick leave, you get great support. When you say people should be able to be at home to recover from illness or injury, you get more support. Mm -hmm. When you say paid family leave, you get great support. When you say a a mom or dad should be there the first time their newborn smiles, you get greater support. So 
you don't message the policy. You message what the policy delivers. And that's sort of the feeling. That's, that's what it is the policy exists to do, is actually to improve people's lives. Right. Well, thanks for enlightening this policy nerd and all the <laughs> policy nerds watching. We very much appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for all having right. me. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.